This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Insight Biosciences Canada, available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. We have such good treatments nowadays for kids who are suffering from pediatric psoriasis and other inflammatory conditions. And honestly, I do think the drugs we have now, the biologics in particular, are safer than some of the drugs that we used to use in the past and definitely more effective. That's uh, Dr. Perla Lansang. She's an associate professor in dermatology at the University of Toronto. She's based at both Sunnybrook Healthcare Centre and at the hospital for sick children in Toronto. She has a special interest in both pediatric and adolescent dermatology. She's our guest in this episode of JCMS Author Interviews. I'm your host, Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, we're thrilled to have Dr. Lansing on the podcast to discuss an article she co-authored in the January-February issue of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. The article was entitled, A Practical Guide to Using Biologics in Pediatric Dermatology. As a reminder, this article is open access through the uh, JCMS website. Well, hi, Perla. Hi, Kurt. So nice to see you yeah i guess yeah and hear me a little bit so thanks for thanks for joining it's uh i'm really looking forward to talking about this paper um and and um i was quite keen because a practical guide to using biologics in pediatric dermatology i mean um i think the only problem now is access to these wonderful and amazing drugs that you put out here um that's our biggest problem and it's come such a long way in biologics and the, it, you make it easy the paper is very very good it's a great um, sort of guide to getting started and it really accentuates the fact that that the kids need the treatment we have the treatment so let's give them the treatment yeah that was really the goal of the paper um you know you are correct we have such good treatments nowadays for you know kids who are suffering from pediatric psoriasis and other inflammatory conditions um and honestly, I do think the drugs we have now, the biologics in particular, are safer than some of the drugs that we used to use in the past and definitely more effective. Um, and you're right. Uh, I think I think access is one barrier, but I think people just don't think about it. I think people are just much more scared to treat children and parents are scared to treat their children. So, So I'm hoping the goal of this paper was really to make it look like it's easy, like as you said. Like, it's it's very doable. Yeah, so it's time. Of course, it takes time to set people up. And people that aren't interested in treating children probably aren't going to use the biologics. They'll give them a cream and say goodbye. Um, so, you know, it behooves us to make it so that our colleagues understand biologic therapy, how easy it is to do. And then the second thing is parents. How Before we jump into the paper, how do you yes. deal with that parent? piece the, the, where the where you say listen I'd, I'd like to put your child on this medicine it's an internal medicine and it's gonna you know it is it the next question is does it affect their immune system it's the next question you get yes. right how could you you know anyways we'll stick with the cream thank you very much doctor how do you how do you deal with that i think the biggest lesson i've learned having done this for so many years now is that i think parents underestimate how much the skin disease really affects the child. A lot of parents think the safest thing to do is to do nothing, right? Because you're not giving the child medication. You're not putting like whatever chemicals into your child's body. So that's the safest thing to do. 
And that's the in the best interest of their child. And I think just having the conversation of how that particular skin disease, whether it's rhesus, atopic dermatitis, HS, whatever it is, how that affects the child growing up and how that can affect their life ultimately, I think opens up the eyes of the parents to see, oh no, not treating this disease is not an option. We cannot do that. That is a disservice to the child, to my child. That's the worst thing I could do for my child. So I think having that conversation first and foremost, just how this disease affects their child's growth, their child's quality of life, learning, sleep, all of that, relationships. One of my favorite lines is, it's hard enough to be a teenager without anything, but to be a teenager and to have, you know, severe psoriasis or severe atopic dermatitis or hydrogenitis superior like that adds a layer of complexity to kind of the growth and development of the teenager that unlike any other. So we, we need to get rid of that and we have tools to get rid of it. So why would we keep your child suffering? And I think that hits home for a lot of parents, um, knowing that we're on the same team, all we, we, that's what they want. That's what I want. And that's what the child wants. I think, I think just, um, you know, make having them see that we're all on the same side. We all yeah. have the same goal. And we're not treating normal skin. The, the, the option no, is between not. normal skin or the drug. The, 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 the option is between getting clear skin and, and your life exactly. you know, and, and using the drug. And so exactly. once the safety profile is discussed... I mean, I I think that's when patients kind of get the bright light. The light kind of goes on. You've told them, mm-hmm. like, your, your child, and I, I use the word suffering, too. Because yes. I, I really believe 100%. that it is, right? And, I'm, and, yeah. I'm, and I've yes. always been an advocate for being very aggressive and getting the kids clear. And then you can worry about keeping them clear later. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, remember, when, remember when psoriasis... Let's talk about psoriasis. Remember when, when phototherapy was the treatment of choice? And yes. phototherapy was the treatment of choice because we didn't have much else. We had a little methotrexate maybe for the kids that were really bad. But even before we started to they do much methotrexate, it was phototherapy. And then the biologics came along. And it took forever for our colleagues to, to switch over and say, we should use the biologics early in the treatment no no we shouldn't keep them on phototherapy keep them on phototherapy because we worried about uh, uh, about about giving them this potentially immunosuppressant and so i used to argue well hang on a minute let's give them the immunosuppressant early be aggressive and then if you're really worried about skin cancer you give them the you give them the carcinogen later which is the phototherapy <laughs> right <laughs> and and, and I, so that's the only thing I started to get people to understand, you know. And they, of course, they're not immunosuppressants. They're you had to think of a new yeah. word around that, and, and everything. Yeah. But but we've yeah. really come a long, long ways to where, as you pointed out, the drugs are so safe. I know, I know. I uh, I like to use analogies and and kind of like pictures and scenarios when I talk to patients. So the the way I like to tell them. The way I like to uh, speak about biologics, it's like using a dart and hitting the target every time, right? And then you leave the rest of the numbers, the rest of the dartboard, and that's kind of like your immune system. Um, You know, it's very precise, it's very accurate, and then it's it's very targeted. And so we don't need to hit anything else that we don't need to hit. And I think that resonates with them because 
you know, the, people think their immune system is just this one thing, but it's really a very complex, even we don't understand it fully. And so being as targeted as possible allows your immune system to work as normally as possible in other ways, right? Except for the thing that you're targeting. I I find that with the biologic specifically, um, I also like to call them smart drugs, kind of like smartphones, because parents, you know, yeah, technology. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. exactly. Um, so I'm like, these smart drugs, this is what they do. Uh, and I don't think they realize that. You know, they, they look at it and say it targets your immune system and they think it targets everything. Like, that's it. Tomorrow, you're going to be sick. Um, not recognizing that they really are quite safe drugs. Well, when we put these people on the drug and they say, well, does it need a blood test? And you say, yeah, well, sure. we're yeah. looking at the dupilumab, for example. No, not really. We can do some. And then what, are you gonna, what blood tests are you going to do to follow up? Well, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got to be wishy-washy because they're so safe we don't need to follow. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's, especially for young kids, that's a big change, right? Like if we were using something to, like a traditional systemic medication like methotrexate or cyclosporine, you would have to be doing blood tests all the time. And I hate needles, so I fully empathize with kids who hate needles as well. Um and, you know, the blood draw is, is definitely much more painful than having a subcutaneous injection, you know, every few weeks or sometimes even every few months. Um, and so I think that the fact that there's no monitoring, is the kids love it because they don't need blood work, but the parents love it because it tells them that there's there's really nothing that we're worried about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose the thing we should really talk about a little bit is the vaccination world, because that, that seems to be the Amen. little wrinkle in the, in the, in the pediatric age group. And, yes. um, and, uh, you know, and I would think that in the younger kids, the drug we're using most often is, are the drugs to treat atopic dermatitis rather than the psoriatic mm-hmm. drugs. Um, so, yeah. so what's your, so Dupilumab, for example, uh, you know, mm-hmm. earlier and earlier we start the kids, yeah, what's, what's, what's six your, months and up now, right? Yeah, so what's your take on the vaccine, vaccination schedules? Do we need to alter them? You know, out of an overabundance of caution and, and just kind of that's because that's what everyone else is doing, I do still, if I can, hold a dose around vaccination. Do I actually think there's a risk there? Highly unlikely. Like even from a mechanism of action perspective, pathophysiologically, it doesn't make sense that it's going to be a dangerous thing to give a vaccine, whether it's live or or attenuated or killed or parts of viruses. I, I don't think there's actually any risk there. But I mean, over an, oh, because we don't have data, that's kind of standard of practice. So when I approach it, though, um, it really depends on how bad atopic dermatitis is, right? And the, and so when I and we're skipping when we're skipping doses, the nice thing about the biologics is there's very rarely a big giant rebound if you miss one dose. So that does give us a little bit of leeway and gives us a little bit of time to kind of figure out when we can dose, when we can adjust the dose, when we can skip a dose. Of course, if the child is very very inflamed still, it's probably wise to just you know hold the vaccination for a few months until we get the atopic dermatitis stabilized. And then when the atopic dermatitis is stabilized, then then you can say, okay, why don't we skip a dose here and give the vaccination, time the vaccination around then. But then at least you don't expect this big massive flare two weeks later. Right. So you, which is so, nice. so you would 
give the dose, like you give the vaccine at the time you might have given the dose, and then hold it. Then yeah. what? And say in dupilumab instance, you'd hold for two weeks after that? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Do the okay. four weeks. Um, I mean, in, in, in some age groups and some weight groups, the dosing is monthly anyway. So yeah. if you hold one dose, then you really, like you have a lot of time, time in between yeah. giving the vaccine and allowing the body to make antibodies. Although a lot of the data now does show that, you know, children who are on kind of either interleukin-13 or IL-413, they, they do make antibodies to the vaccines. So are we really needlessly holding the dose? Yeah. At, like, I, probably. probably, likely. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. As we learn, we'll change. Right as as we did yeah. with as we did when we started with TNFs, for example, yeah. as, you know we we have to have enough people out there that are using the drugs and enough children being treated, and people starting to look at the yeah. at the um, at the ability of these vaccines to produce immunity, because that was a big thing. We I mean we had all these surrogate um, vaccinations, so they're looking at titers of antibodies and stuff. I can remember early on trying to figure out what to do yeah. with these things. And at the end of the day, you just get, start people on drug and almost, except for, for you know, uh, yellow fever and maybe another life, you just keep keep on the drug. And, and yeah. the same with surgeries. We used to freak about, oh, geez, I'm not so sure we should we should give this person a surgery or how we're going to adjust their biologic, five half-lives and all this sort of stuff. And for the most part now, it's better to put someone into surgery who's well than to exactly. somebody that's in trouble and because you've held the drug back from them, right? Yeah. And with certain modifications, of course, for infection and that sort of thing. But but we become, we become much smarter as, as clinicians observe how people react to things. It doesn't require a test tube so much. It requires, it requires yeah. a good observer and good eyes. <laughs> True. See enough patients, right? Yeah. See enough yeah. patients, observe enough patients, talk to enough colleagues, um, and get some sense. And, and of course, that's where journals come into play. And that's where articles yeah. like yours do, right? I mean, your, art, your article, and I really recommend people actually spend the time to read it. And it, and it is um, open access, so everybody can get it. Because it's very, very... Um, uh, prescriptive meaning you know the, you it tells you how to do it it tells you what not to worry about not to, mm -hmm. it doesn't really say yeah. worry about much just you don't need to worry about this you don't need to worry about that yeah so, i mean I, th I, I think practice is complex enough that we wanted to yeah. say okay this is your checklist before you start what do you monitor do you even monitor uh you know like how do you follow these kids i, I think that was really the goal is to have almost like a recipe to make prescribing these biologics easy well, you did it. It's, Thank uh, you. It's well accomplished. Well accomplished. So, is there anything? That, you. Is there anything that you learned when doing this paper? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I learned that it's sometimes because you know we don't have a lot of like hard data for a lot of things. So, when we were writing this paper, um, you know, when our song to Melinda about you know what should we, how do you commit to a statement when you don't have like five journals or five randomized controlled trials backing you up. And I think it, I learned that it's a fine balance between, you know, committing to something because you actually believe in it and that's what you do in your daily practice um, versus being too careful and then not giving valuable information. Right. You know, there's a fine balance there. So we really wanted 
we really wanted this to be a practical guide, and hence the title. Um, and we wanted people to come away with it knowing what to do and not have this kind of wishy-washy paper. Right. Doctors to doctors. Yeah. I've always said, look, if I want to learn about how to treat someone, find somebody who's really good at treating this condition and ask them the questions. How do you do this? How do you manage that? Go hunting. Now I'm going to go hunting for Pearl's article on biologics in children when I want to start a child on biologics, right? And look, because you've got experience and you've been able to, you know, if you if you want to know how to do something, ask someone to, ask someone who's done it a lot because they'll make it look really easy. You'll do it. It won't be quite as easy as you might have thought, but you'll get it right. I mean, like anything, I think using these drugs is a skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The faster you are, the more efficient you are, the more you know what you to look for. Um, you know where your comfort level is. Um, yeah, uh, like it, if you practice enough, you'll get better at well, it, if you can call it that, I guess. Well, well that, 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 of course, is why it's called the practice of medicine. Ah, true. Can, Very true. That's what it is. Okay, so now, um, are there any instances where you wouldn't use a biologic in a patient with severe psoriasis or atopic eczema? I mean, this whole story of history of malignancy, let's say if a child had a malignancy, I, I, I think... That's still that's still tough um, because we don't have data for that. Do I think it's dangerous? Un- again, unlikely. But cancers are a different things. So you know, kids with hematologic malignancies, things like that, because that's not an uncommon thing. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it really is shared decision making with with the parents as well. Um, but I I wouldn't say I have very absolute contraindications to using these biologics. Uh, I see quite a number of very complex kids with multiple comorbidities. Um, And given the number of options we have, most of the time we can make something work. Yes. With the rest of the team. Yeah, most of the time we can make something work. And when we talk to the the pediatric oncologists, for example, or the pediatric hematologists about these drugs and putting these people on drugs, they look, most of the are pediatricians, they look at the well-being of the child and they look at this kid suffering with their eczema, suffering with their bad psoriasis. Most of the time, I get a pretty much a shrug of shoulders kind of approach. You know, let's try it. Let's make this kid feel mm-hmm. better. You know, they're, they're, like nobody has the data. We have, we have a, a hint from... Um, from adult world, that it's not going to make a big difference. Yes. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I get this sort of, okay, like you say, the team approach to managing some of these complex kids. Yeah. Okay, so my next question is this. You, easy on. We've got a safe drug. Where the kids get better. When do you take them off? Oh, that is the golden question, right? Isn't it? <laughs> I, I This is a conversation, as you can imagine, that, uh, I have all the time with parents. And I'll say, you know, the risk of taking your child off the medication is that the the, the disease will recur. And are we willing to take that risk? Especially if I mean, we're using a drug that we know is safe and has had like zero long-term side effects. Like I am just going to take an example. Let's say uh, Eustachinumab. Eustachinumab has been around for so long and we have really good data from the adult world and we have 
um, databases and all of that. And so when when parents, and especially with psoriasis, because you know, usually by the time I get a kid to a biologic for psoriasis, I know that they, this is not like gut psoriasis that's going to go away. Like, you know, it's there. And so also by the time the, this conversation happens, the kids also have a voice, I think. The kids need to make that decision with their parents because parents always want to take the, the drug away. But yeah. the kid often is the one that says, but I'm fine. Like I have clear skin. I'm doing well. Why would I want to kind of go back to where I was before? And so I think that just that conversation um, is a recurrent one. But I have to say 99% of the time we end up keeping the kids on drugs. Um. I think it's it's nice to have kind of more data for something like atopic dermatitis that might be a bit more volatile than psoriasis um, because it is a disease that tends to like be really explosive and then can have quiet periods. Um, I think now when I'm talking to a lot of the pediatric dermatology world, uh, when we are using something like dupilumab, let's say, the general sense is you we might be able to take children off drug, but again... To me, that time will only come if the kids are clear. Clear, and right? clear for some if time. If they have, exactly, right? If they still have, if they're still using their topicals every day, or if they get, let's say, an easy 75, we know if we take them off drug, they're going to flare. So unless they're like easy 99, easy 100 for a, for a good chunk of time, that's, I think, the only reasonable time to have like a serious conversation about maybe either weaning off doses or, or taking kids off drug. What about increasing interval? When somebody gets clear, let's, let's say focus on dupilumab, for example. And so mm-hmm. we get somebody clear, two years, mm-hmm. two years clear. They're 10, 12-ish. Yeah. Um, would you consider the increase in the, the interval? Yeah, I have done that. Yeah. You know, giving it every... And if they were on every two weeks, giving it every three and then every four, it's also, I think, and this is in no way supported by data, but I think it's, it also supports the fact that, you know, if we try this and they flare, then we know that we can't take them off. It's like a test period. Yeah. Um, but if we do this and they stay clear and they're on, you know, every four weeks or every six weeks, even then, then it might make sense. You know, this, we yeah. might be able to take a drug holiday. Yeah, it's also nice that the biologics we have now, a lot of them don't have um, anti-drug antibodies, where whereas it used to be the concern before. So, at least I mean we don't have data for recurrent start and stop things, but at least if we stop and restart, we know most people will recapture. Um, So I I think that's uh, that's quite Mm. reassuring. So not clearly we're not recommending Mm. that. It's just that people are starting to think. people are starting to think about it. Right, and for the people, sure. and, and and so we're starting to think about it, but patients are starting to think about it, and in my world, they're starting to think about it because of cost, even if it's the copay, and they, they start to think about its cost, or the kids are transitioning away from home, they're going to college, or there's there's different, oh, there's different, um, they're losing their insurance, there, I mean, there are all kinds of discussions going on that that uh, perhaps the doctors aren't even party to. Um, I, I can remember people True. hoarding their Enbrel, 
And yes, you know, so, so they would yeah. in case French their folds. insurance ran off, right? And and and, and not telling uh-huh. us what was going on. So just getting the prescription and putting it in the fridge in case uh, the zombie apocalypse occurred and they couldn't get their drug, right? Because it was so successful for them. But there's that's a, a Netflix series. Yeah, that's a Netflix series. Yes, <laughs> but it, but it, it's but it, it's something to think about, and patients will do it. Yeah, know, especially if they were fearful going in, the, the parents, right? Yeah, for sure. And I and I think the younger and younger we use these medications, that conversation becomes much more common as well. You know, if I'm putting, let's say, an eight month old or a nine month old on, you know, a biologic, the first question, one of the first questions the parents will ask is, do they have to be on this forever? Yeah. Right. And it is tough to commit to forever when you're nine months old. Yeah. And so I think we need to be open minded about whether there are possibilities. What are the possibilities? Uh, how can we sort of play around in air quotes with the information that we have, with our experience, with, you know, in collaboration with everyone else who's using these medications? How can we be flexible and not just be very prescriptive and say, no, no, once you're on this drug, you're on this drug forever, right? Because that never feels, never sits well with a patient yeah. and a parent. Um, so I think being flexible and being a, being willing to work around that um creatively sometimes within reason and i think being very thoughtful about how we're going to go about this particular situation is is important i think that's part of our job yeah well, we have the we have the same discussions around protopic and uh and eladel when it first when they first were introduced mm-hmm. right because they were also considered immunosuppressants and how long mm-hmm. is my baby going to have to be on them now now these drugs are as safe as Vaseline. I mean, they're 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 just really easy drugs to use, and we're we're trying to yeah. get everybody on them. So, do you when you're dealing with the, um, the I don't want to say the complex patient, but say somebody with severe atopic dermatitis, you're putting on a biologic. Do you ever involve the pediatricians in that discussion? Yes, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm quite lucky because a lot of my complex patients I'm able to see at the hospital for sick children, and so it's a, it's easier for me to get access to other specialists, like the failure to thrive clinic, let's say. I've, I've sent some patients there. Or for psoriasis, you know, the obesity clinic sometimes, or if, you know, a patient has fatty liver, or if I think they need a screening for Crohn's disease, let's say. Um, so I've been quite spoiled that way because I have, I have lots of colleagues to work with. Um, and I do think it is more complex to treat children with severe skin disease yes. than adult. I think it's it's much more straightforward in an adult population. Clearly. Um, yeah, I find that a lot of, let's say, my psoriasis kids have other comorbidities. So many more of them have IBD. So many more of them have, you know, uveitis. Like, I don't think I have a single adult. No, I, that's not true. I have two <laughs> adults with uveitis, but there's more in children. Sure. And, and the thing is that we are committing these kids, as the parents have told you, to a lifetime of treatment. And there's going to be mm-hmm. lots of bumps in the road. And I I really encourage pediatric community. I'm in the community. So it's still accessible to us. It may not be as easy, but it's still accessible yeah. to involve the pediatricians yeah. in early because they they give you more. They give you support. They they handle the kids a different way. They handle the family a different way. Than, than we Definitely. Might, right? And, you know, Definitely. And, and they're clearly going to... Um, 
they're clearly going to bring up the point of suffering, and particularly when the kid gets so much better on on our therapy, and they start to thrive at school, and and all those really positive things start to happen. The pediatrician, I think, adds to the keep going, keep going, this is great for your kid kind of approach, right? So I'm I'm quite keen on that collaborative work. For sure. And also, I think it's important for the pediatricians to see the outcomes because it clues them into, oh, my other patient needs treatment as well. I think, you know, uh, other specialties are a little slower to come around to, you know, the the way or mm-hmm. our philosophy of treating skin disease aggressively, right? Yes. Other specialties sort of sometimes don't get that. But I think when they see the change that happens in that child, you know, the child can now sleep and can now learn and it's not running around your office bouncing off the walls, which a lot of like severe atopic kids um, often yeah. do. Yeah. Um, uh, when, once they see that change, because uh, the, the, the personality of the child does change. I find when you've treated them well, like an atopic child who's itchy all day, all day, when they see that, it might encourage them to encourage their other patients to seek treatment as well. So I think that's one of the nice parts about collaborating with other specialties. Yeah, and it's a lifetime. It's a truly atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, as you alluded to earlier, they're lifetime diseases. Oh, you yes. You have them a lifetime. And, um mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's 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 truly important to have multiple doctors involved, and that's the problem. We've lost the doctors' lounge, right? Uh, the yeah. doctors' lounges don't exist, right? With that, we used to co-mingle and have a chit chat, and you used to be able to learn stuff from those doctors' lounges. So, right, yeah, dermatology too, being more an outpatient clinic, I find that we tend to get siloed. You know, sometimes we feel like. You're not as connected to the rest of the hospital. Let's say I work in a hospital. And even then, um, because mm-hmm. we are almost always purely outpatient, I don't get to meet everyone. So I think making an effort to collaborate with other specialties um, and and involving them with with all our patients, I, I think just elevates one, the level of patient care. And I think elevates the appreciation for our specialty, honestly. Yeah, agreed. And we're treaters, especially yeah. with this stuff. And, and before yeah. we used to have creams. Yes. <laughs> now we have drugs that actually work. That may, can make. And it. we use them more yeah, than, we than them. other specialties. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So we're so, <laughs> and 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 not and not in a cavalier kind of way. We use them more appropriately, and we follow the patients, and we do the blood work, and blah blah blah. I mean, I think I think we've really, I think I think we've entered the mainstream of medicine. And so <laughs> I think know, so. That's so good. I was giving a talk to GIs the other day and I said, you know, in dermatology, we're sort of spoiled because we even have head-to-head trials of biologic versus biologic. What other specialty has that? And and they're like, you're right. We have, they have no idea, right? right. And um, and I said, maybe it's because it's easier to assess the skin. They have to scope everyone in a clinical trial. Um, but, you know, I was presenting our data on psoriasis and they were like, oh my goodness, your drugs are so good. Like, yeah, but you have the same drugs. It's just... We've had them for longer. Yeah. Well, and it's scoping isn't, has it been, it's done so frequently, it's become so darn easy for these guys, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah. like, a, like a skin biopsy almost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. This has been great. Um, a practical approach, but I, I really like the, the, uh, 
bringing this manuscript to life because it, it's, there's so much more here to treating kids with these biologics. So thank you very much for sharing your experience. You're valid. I, I do have to give a shout out uh, to Melinda, um, who is one of the authors of this paper. Um, it was really, she was giving a, I think she was giving a talk on this and she said, you know, we should write the paper. Like she, we were texting and then she started writing and she was like, you know, I, you should join me because you do this more. Um, and, and, you know, Melinda has such a wealth of experience as well. So it was really uh, such a nice collaboration with someone who is, who I very well respect and is very well respected in the field and has a tons of experience. So it was, um, apart from the fact that I think the paper came out really nicely, I think it was a really enjoyable collaborative process as well. All right. Well, job well done. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's your, that's your first podcast. <laughs> that was painless. Well, that's it for this episode of the JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Uh, you can see my voice is having a little bit of difficulty as I've developed this dysphonia. But hopefully you're able to hear through my warblings, if you will. If you did enjoy it, please give us a rating and review where you listen. It helps more people find these interviews. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with your colleagues on social media. If you're looking for more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out Dermalogs, our residence podcast hosted by my colleague, Dr. Carrie Purdy. So thanks so much for listening. I'm Kirk Barber. And until next time, be good to each other. 